0: This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 82, part A.
1: You're listening to Negotiate X Radio helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.
0: Hello and welcome to the NegotiateX podcast. I'm your co co-founder Nolan Martin. And with me is co-host, co-founder, Aramnesian. Aaron, Aram, how are you doing today, sir?
2: Well, Nolan, I'm, I've got two complaints. One, I'm a little wet and cold because of the snow. <laughs> and that leads me to my second complaint, which is, you know, so much about negotiation is about decision making. I think you may be the better negotiator because you made a better decision. And after getting out of the military, you went south. I went north. And uh, this wet white stuff uh, is <laughs> proven problematic. You don't have any of this down in Florida, do you?
0: I don't. Nope tampa is a brisk 55 degrees today
2: so that's nice nothing that's like what you're going through well at least i'll say this since the last time uh we recorded army beat navy so that's for sure that's a good point for sure and we'll build in the new year off that so that's a that's a great <laughs> place to be yep Well, let me go ahead and introduce our guest for today. Dr. John Lowry is a recognized authority on negotiation through his experience as a lawyer, business leader, consultant, negotiation coach, and university administrator. John serves as the president of Thrivance, a management consulting firm based in Nashville, Tennessee. In addition to leading the firm, John counsels clients on leadership, executive team effectiveness, strategy, revenue growth, and conflict management. John also serves as president of the Lowry Group, where he provides negotiation training and coaching for governmental entities, major insurance companies, healthcare organizations, and other businesses. John is the author of Negotiation Made Simple, a new book released by HarperCollins Publishing in 2023. He is also the host of the Negotiation Made Simple podcast, focused on helping leaders find their next level of success through negotiation. John, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Aram. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be a fun conversation. Well, John, could
0: you share a bit about your journey in the field of negotiations? Were there any key moments or impactful influences that led you down the path of becoming a negotiator?
3: Sure. Well, I think a lot of my negotiation journey started real close to where Aram lives up in New Hampshire. And I spent my childhood uh, going to Vermont Law School in South Royalton, Vermont, where my father uh, would teach a negotiation course at Vermont Law School. And many times I would kind of pop into that course and help them with simulations and go get people back into class who are out doing a negotiation simulation. So literally, that's my roots in terms of thinking about negotiation. But professionally, it really grew out of kind of the practice of law. I always I wanted to be a real lawyer. I never thought my father was a real lawyer because he was a professor.
0: And I was <laughs> like,
3: you know, you don't go on the court. You just teach it. Um, <laughs> so I'd always give him a hard time. So I wanted to be a real lawyer and I had that opportunity to be a real lawyer and that was great fun. But then realized that really where it gets done is through the negotiation process and uh, began to see that. And after a number of years of practicing law, uh, ultimately left to go help people think through this process that I believe is the process that's used to really get things done.
2: Well, I love the credit that you give to your father in your book. We're going to talk about your book in a moment. As I was sharing, I teach negotiation as well. And I thought about bringing my kids to class, one, to learn, and it's neat to hear the influence and impact that had on you. And then two, Certainly nice to have an extra set of hands to go collect people up when they're, when they're supposed to be returning. Everybody drags their feet when they're supposed to return from a negotiation. It doesn't matter how much time you give them.
3: That's right. And it's always like, uh, all right, guys, it's time to come back. And then everyone's like, all right, we're going to go take a little break and then we'll be in there. And you're like, no, 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 no. You were supposed to have done that already. Like, let's go.
2: Well, John, I'd love to dive into your book a little bit, "Negotiation Made Simple." As you were sharing with us before we started the recording, this was an easy process. You just whipped this book right out, right? This, this, this wasn't this wasn't a long
3: process yeah, at all. Yeah, I just sat down, and it was like two hours later, I had it all done. And uh, the editor was like, "Oh yeah, we're good. We don't need to do anything on it." But no, it really wasn't that journey. Uh, it was it was a long journey, but it was a journey that I actually I tell people I say I think the lesson of writing the book may be more important than any lesson in the book. Hmm. And so I'll tell that story real quick. Yeah. I was teaching a negotiation course about 2015, 2016 somewhere. And there was a gentleman in the course by the name of Don Miller, who's become a great friend. And Don does a lot of work uh, in the marketing space and helping small businesses and entrepreneurs. Don took this course and he came up afterwards and he was like, this content is amazing. He's like, you really need to write a book. And I was like, yeah, you know, I've been thinking about that. I really should do that. And he said, well, I'll be glad to help you. Now, when you have a New York Times bestselling author offer to help you kind of write a book, you really should kind of jump on that, right? Absolutely. Uh, But not me. I'm too (laughs) stubborn, right? And so I was like, all right, we'll get there. So Don, we kind of started talking about this book and all this kind of stuff. And What I was trying to do is I was trying to take our course, which is a very interactive course, lots of games, lots of exercises, lots of simulations, lots of case studies. And I was trying to figure out how you replicate that experience in a book. And Don kept telling me, like, you're making it too complicated like it's a book Hmm. just make it really easy tell the people what they need to know and don't try to make it interactive and so i would argue with don saying oh but this is negotiation like this is a skill-based thing not a knowledge-based thing you got to have the experience and he was like patient and said whatever good luck with that and so i was (laughs) making it way way too complicated and finally it was a conversation with the publisher once we got there Um, who was like, how far are you from finishing the book? And I start explaining all these things I'm trying to do. And they're like, look, you know, someone's going to listen to this book as they're running on a treadmill or read this book as they're sitting in an airplane seat. Like they don't have time to go to websites and play games and do all this kind of stuff. Like it's not going to work. And so you just need to just write the book. And so I went through this process and it was actually a guy named Barry O'Reilly that kind of helped me see the process I went through to where I actually had to unlearn how to teach negotiation and relearn hmm. how to teach it in the context of a book. And that actually became a really, really good lesson. And I think it's a great lesson for negotiators. Yeah, There are so many dynamics in negotiation. And we've built up intuition, but it doesn't serve us well in this process. And so many times we have to unlearn some things, hmm. start with the blank slate and then relearn. And it's in that process that we can actually become better and we can improve. And so uh, that whole journey was, I think, a powerful lesson. And I love sharing that story because I think there's some lessons in there that are actually very valuable for negotiators in addition to, uh, you know, some of the strategies and the skills that are offered in the book.
2: Yeah. One thing that strikes me with what you just said is the thought that as as our modality of communication changes, so from one of teaching and training and maybe in a room with people to one of writing a book that somebody's going to listen to or read or something, as modality changes, there are some things that have to change, even though the principles that you're going to, that you're, we're going to get to that you illustrate in the book, most likely remain the same. There has to be some flexibility around, um, the modality.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, for me, that was about a five-year journey in terms of getting there. And then once I got there, uh, then it was really easy, uh, to where I was like, all right, let's start with a blank slate. I got an hour and a half of someone's time. What do I need to tell them about negotiation (laughs) to make it as simple as a process as possible for anyone to manage? And that became the book. And once I got there, the book flowed pretty quickly. Well, I love the stories that you share
2: throughout the book. There's nice examples. The very first introduction struck me because I, I grew up in farm country out in Eastern Oregon. And, it, and it, the introduction is the story of a farmer and a traveling carpenter. And I was wondering if you might just as a hook to, you know, pull our listeners in, share that story. And how does it tie to someone becoming a more successful negotiator?
3: That's a powerful story I heard in church one day. And uh, I thought uh, that story always stuck with me. It was long time ago where I heard that story. I couldn't even find like the actual origins of the story, like there's too many versions Mm. of it out there. So I don't know who to credit with the actual like original version of this story. But it's simply a story of two farmers that live next to each other. And they live next to each other for years, their wives have passed on and they get into a dispute over a stray calf. And one farmer thinks it's his and the other farmer thinks it's his. And like so many things in life, something as silly as one little stray calf can become an issue and it can escalate into becoming something to where now they don't have that friendship, they don't have that relationship. And so as a result of that, one of the farmers has this, this traveling worker that's coming through who is a carpenter and he's looking for work and the farmer decides that it would be a good idea to build a fence uh, between their two farms. And so he engages this carpenter to build this fence and in the process of that, the carpenter kind of begins to discover the story and the why behind the fence. And the carpenter uh, being someone that is perhaps kind of bold in this moment but someone who values things that are perhaps deeper than just the fence that divides the property Uh, the carpenter decides to actually build a bridge uh, over the creek that divides these two farms as opposed to building the fence and so you can imagine the farmer that hired him to build a fence at the end of the day comes down into that area (laughs) of the property and he doesn't see his fence. He sees this bridge. And it's quite a moment where the carpenter doesn't know exactly what's going to happen or what the reaction is going to be. But at the same time, the other farmer comes down as well. And this is the moment where the other farmer sees that farmer as taking this act of reconciliation and responds favorably to it. And as a result, those farmers cross that bridge and rekindle their friendship and there's reconciliation and relationship moving forward. And so I tell people at the beginning of the book, there are moments as a negotiator where you have to be like that carpenter and, uh, the purpose of bringing people together. Uh, that's, that, that's where negotiation is at its finest in terms of a process that adds value to the world, whether that be in business or anywhere else. Um, And then, you know, the idea of being bold enough to take the process in a different direction, that's something that negotiators have to do as well.
2: Yeah, I love the story itself. I used to fix fence for my dad as a kid growing up. I'm not sure I was ever as good as with the carpenter in terms of kind of... (laughs) perspective and understanding uh, i just went out and fixed the fence but i really but i love i love that as a setup for what we need to be striving towards as negotiators and just as as people you know living in society and community with one another
0: yeah it's a great story john that's really powerful story really appreciate you sharing that one you also discuss the five things that great negotiators know could you outline the five key things that according to you make a great negotiator and can we briefly talk about each of them
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, as we think about the things that make someone a great negotiator, what what I tried to do here was just distill it down to five things. To where, if you're going to remember just five things out of this book, what are those five things that I want you to remember that I think will make a difference? And the first thing is to recognize that great negotiators know how to manage themselves. And so, one of the things that, as I kind of looked at all the negotiation literature out there you know, there's a lot out there in terms of how do you manage tactics and how do you manage the other side and how do you manage the process? And all of those are really good things. There are important parts of this, but my argument is the number one thing you have to know how to manage really, really well to be a great negotiator is you have to know how to manage yourself. And I see this a lot to where, you know, when you start to get, and we'll get into this, but when you start to understand how people make decisions, uh, when you start to understand, uh, how people choose to behave, a lot of that has to do with what's going on inside. There's fears, anxieties, egos, goals, values, those kinds of things are driving people, even in the most business oriented context or the most legal oriented context where that's seemingly irrelevant. The reality is, is that Negotiation is always between people. And so you can't remove the human element from it. And so even if those people are representing corporations or multinational companies or the government or whoever, it's still people putting deals together with other people. And so as a result of that, one of the things that I really encourage people to do is to embrace the human element of negotiation and to. Think about the fact that what's going on inside of us impacts us as a negotiator. And so we've got to know how to deal with the fear that comes with, oh, my goodness, like, how are they going to react to this offer? Uh, We've got to deal with, you know, what are we going to do if this deal starts going down a direction to where we may not look good at the end of it? And how is that going to impact us? And what I think is that a lot of the mistakes that get made in this process is because people just don't know how to manage themselves very well. Uh, The second thing is, is uh, you got to know when to compete and to cooperate. And so uh, in negotiation, move by move, this strategy may have to change depending upon how the negotiation is going. And so what I find is that some people are very competitive people. And they're just naturally built that way. And they've created success out of being competitive, but they're actually competitive at the wrong time. And so they've got this person that's ready to be cooperative with them and they come in and blow them up. And as a result, now they have a competitive person and you're like, what are you doing? You dead someone that was ready to work with you, but you don't know anything different. And so the same thing with cooperative people, you're walking into a competitive negotiation. This person is not concerned about win-win. They're only concerned about one win Uh, and it's their win, not your win. And so you can't walk into that and be super cooperative and expect them to reciprocate. Uh, You're going to get exploited in that moment. And so great negotiators, they know when they need to be cooperative and when they need to be competitive and then they're effective at doing both. Third thing is, and this is again, something that's a little bit counterintuitive, but you know, the most important move in this whole process is actually the first move because of the signals that are sent with it because of the anchor that gets laid because of the influence that happens in that first move, the expectations that are set. And so often I see people go in with a, let's see what happens approach. Or they go in and we're going to start here and just go from there. And that isn't the most strategic way to approach and launch a negotiation. And so great negotiators know that that first move uh, is the most important move. Then the fourth thing is really the idea that great negotiators, they know how to solve problems. uh, But they know how to solve problems using empathy and creativity. And hopefully we'll get an opportunity to talk more about empathy, because I think that is something that this book introduces that's kind of new to the field, if you will, is thinking about empathy in the context of negotiation. Negotiation has touched on it in terms of what empathy is all about. That's not new to negotiation. But this idea of empathy that is kind of popular right now. I think there is an application of it to negotiation to where people can actually become more powerful negotiators by learning how to become more empathetic. And there's actually some research that backs this up. And so really the second half of the book is based a lot on empathy and there's even a chapter on it. And then the last thing is, is that, you know, great negotiators understand how to satisfy everyone. And that's really important because so many negotiators, they're out for themselves. And what great negotiators know is that the more you satisfy the other side, then the better position you put them in to satisfy you with what you're looking for. And so, uh, having that understanding in terms of saying, you know, this game is about trying to figure out how to satisfy everyone, not just satisfy me or my company or my goals or my pricing or whatever. Once you get there, now you're at a place to where you can get some really good stuff done. So those are the five simple things. And if you take nothing out of this podcast or the book or whatever, Those five things can make a difference in your negotiation success.
2: That's a great setup. And in your book, you define negotiation as a strategic communication process to make a deal or solve a problem. Furthermore, you go on to state that we negotiate every day and there's this danger that exists when we don't see ourselves as negotiators. And I'm I'm wondering if this kind of ties to your first point around managing ourselves. I wonder if you could expand on that thinking. Why may it lead to catastrophe when we don't embrace our roles as professional negotiators?
3: Yeah. So it's really interesting when I do keynote speeches or when I do training, what I'll often do is I will give people this working definition that I have for negotiation. And I'll just ask them the question. I'll say, all right, think back to last week. I literally, I want you to reflect on every email, every phone call, every meeting, every Zoom call. Think about all the time you spent in your professional role. I said, how much of that time was spent engaged in this strategic communication process to get a dealer to solve a problem. And people will shout out, you know, 80%, 90%, 75%. Uh, It's almost always above 50% in terms of the numbers that they share. And managers, there's some research that says that that number is usually around 75%-ish or so for managers. And so the reality is, is that, you know, these people, while they have all these different titles and all these different roles and all these different responsibilities, the thing that is unifying is how it is that they generate success. And the way that they generate success is to effectively manage this strategic communication process to get deals and solve problems. And so I will ask people, I'll say, get out a business card and everyone gets out their business card and I'll literally have them cross their title off. And I'll have them write, here's your new title. You are a professional negotiator. And by re-identifying them as professional negotiators, my hope is that they will understand that much of what they do is a negotiation. And when you see yourself as negotiating, it triggers hopefully a strategic response instead of just going through the motions. And so You know, when we go to buy a car, everyone kind of recognizes, okay, there's probably going to be a little negotiation here. I better get ready for this because (laughs) this is a moment where I'm going to have to negotiate. Well, when you sit down with your colleague in a meeting, that may not trigger. And so you may not be acting as strategically or as carefully as you otherwise could recognizing that, yeah, we're negotiating resources within the company and that's a negotiation just like the negotiation with the client on putting the contract together and so when people don't think strategically they miss opportunities they leave value on the table they come up with solutions that aren't as effective as they otherwise could be and just all sorts of bad things happen and so the first thing is to try to get people to see themselves as negotiators And if they do, they're gonna be smarter about how they manage the process.
2: Yeah, as you were sharing that, I was thinking about what we so often hear from folks, which is it's internal to our organization discussions that are sometimes more difficult than external. And I wonder just how much of that is the mindset with which we approach the conversation internally when I'm trying to get more permissions or greater resources or whatever it is. And I'm a little sloppy because I didn't see myself as, as a negotiator or the situation as a negotiation versus when it's with a client over fees or scope or whatever, or it's with, you know, as you were saying, like buying a car, I am aware of that. So I show up differently and it has a huge impact on what we do, but also the
3: outcome. Absolutely. And, you know, I think for a lot of folks, you know, where I see it is I get brought in to work with a lot of sales teams, And, um, you know, you see it to where the sales folks go out there and they're hungry and they go put these great deals together and then they come back and they get frustrated because the company operationally is not able to fulfill what they've sold in the way that they've promised it to the client. Hmm. And so what they run into is they manage the negotiation with the client or the customer really, really well, but the negotiation back home at the ranch in terms of the people that need to fulfill it that didn't get as much attention and so as a result of that you have a challenge because the salespeople promised something now they've run into resistance from the folks that are expected to deliver that and it just shows there was a moment where a lot of attention was paid to one negotiation not much attention to the other And now as a result of that, you've got success, but you've also got a challenge.
0: As you discuss the need to manage yourself in a negotiation, you highlight some of the differences between introverts and extroverts that show up in research. Could you discuss both the challenges and skills introverts and extroverts bring to the negotiation table and why challenging assumptions might be critical to both personality types?
3: Yeah. So it's really interesting. The way that I kind of start this conversation is to say, look, there's no like ideal personality for a negotiator. You can be a really effective negotiator regardless of what your kind of natural personality is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, extroverts, they tend to really communicate in a more comfortable way. And that can be a process that is used quite effectively in the negotiation process because they're so comfortable communicating and they're quick on their feet. They're energized by the opportunity to communicate. Usually they tend to be pretty creative and pretty quick socially in terms of kind of recognizing uh, some of those cues. And as a result of that, they can use that to put really, really good deals together and to connect with people in that way. What's interesting is that introverts are equally as effective. It's just a totally different path. And so the thing about introverts that's so powerful is that they listen really, really well and they're very observant. And so they're able to take in a lot of information that the extroverted folks who are communicating and they're the show that they miss because the introverts aren't trying to be the show. They're just trying to connect and they're trying to listen and find their place. And then they tend to be very reflective. And so as a result of that, they're then able to go back and say, you know, here's what I've heard. Here's the opportunity that I see. And, you know, it may not be in a real flamboyant package, but they're able to connect with people in a way that they can get deals done. And so I spent a number of years managing a development team at a major university. And, you know, we raised hundreds of millions of dollars for this university. And what I found was some of the best development people were, you would never expect them to be effective development people. They didn't have great personalities. They weren't that, frankly, they weren't that engaging. They weren't that fun, but they could go and sit down with a donor and start having these Conversations and listening to the legacy that a donor wants to leave and help them and just journey with them through the process of trying to get there to where at the end of the, that process, you know, they walk away with a million bucks. And so <laughs> I think whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you have a great future. In terms of thinking about how to leverage those skills, whichever comes natural to you into becoming a very sophisticated and effective negotiator.
2: Yeah. In your book, there's this quote you had, which was negotiation requires you to make decisions in the face of great uncertainty. And as you're talking about kind of the strengths that both introverts and extroverts bring to the table, it seems that both can offer some things with dealing with uncertainty in its various forms. Could you talk a little bit to how we can effectively manage these different types, these various forms of uncertainty, the risk and discomfort we feel, and maybe even specifically, one of the big ones you hit on is dealing with bad faith negotiators, regardless of whether intro extrovert, whatever, how do you recommend dealing with those tactics? So uncertainty and really specifically dialing in on negotiators who are acting in bad faith.
3: So uncertainty, I think is one of the biggest challenges of this process. So, you know, as a lawyer, you know, what I've been trained to do is I've been trained to go get all of the information. The beginning of every lawsuit is discovery. And discovery is you go get all of the information that you possibly can get. And once you have all of the information, you then begin to think critically and analytically in terms of identifying the issues, applying those issues to the law, da 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 da, da. If you're a physician, your job is to sit down with the patient, to begin understanding the symptoms, and to get information. Uh, if you're an engineer... Fill in the blank. Every profession has been taught to get all of the information and then go into whatever the process is of using that information to make good decisions, to come up with plans and to deal with whatever the challenges are. The challenge with negotiation is in so many negotiations, you don't have all the information. And even when you think you have all the information, you may not have all the information. And so we play this game in the training where you don't know what the other side is going to do. And people, they make all these moves. They turn out to be the wrong moves because they made the wrong assumptions. (laughs) And then we'll play it again and I'll play it with them and I'll tell them what I'm going to do. And I'll be like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all of the uncertainty away because I'm just going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do. And what's funny is they're like, well, that's not helpful. And I was like, what do you mean it's not helpful? Like you told me the problem was you didn't know. Now you know. So just play your card and let's go. They go, well, we don't know if we can believe you. I go, oh, so even (laughs) even if you have the information, you don't know if you trust it. And so it's a great exercise to kind of point out for folks. You will never be in a place to where there's not uncertainty in this process. And I say, you know, how many times do you sit down and be like, all right, like, what's your bottom line really? Let's start there. And the other side's like, okay, here's the lowest price I could let this go for. Like that doesn't happen. We don't know. And so what then happens is we've got to begin to explore and understand how it is that we deal with uncertainty. For some of us, we just don't trust. And so we're not going to fill the holes with information that We don't know for sure. And so as a result of that, we're going to make assumptions based upon kind of the worst case scenario and then make decisions accordingly. Others of us, were very trusting people. And as a result of that, we fill the hole with information. And what we find, and I've made this mistake many times, is that our assumptions aren't accurate. And so as a result of that, I made a really bad decision and a really bad move, and now I'm going to get burned for it. And so as we think about uncertainty, this is where I encourage people to begin thinking strategically as opposed to just doing what is comfortable, because this is the moment where our intuition can actually lead us astray. And the intuition is, oh, I can trust that person or, oh, they're in this for the win-win. And that's our intuition. But what we find out after the fact is that our intuition actually is wrong And by the time we find that out, we're dead in the water in the deal. Like it's not going to go well for us. And so dealing with uncertainty is the moment where strategy has to come into play. And we got to begin thinking, okay, is that a rational assumption or is that a good assumption? And to begin thinking critically about our own assumptions and how we're going to deal with the uncertainty. Before I make a decision, let me ask some questions and try to find this information out. Because what I can learn and the signals that get sent with that, that may impact the decision I make in terms of how to proceed. And sometimes you don't have the opportunity to do that. And you got to develop a strategy to be able to proceed in the face of the uncertainty. Now, to get to the back part of your questionnaire related to dealing with people in bad faith, I think the thing that uh, or people that are negotiating in bad faith, you know, I think the thing that you've got to do in that situation is it's a lot like dealing with tactics to where one of the important things is just, you know, frankly, to identify it for the other side. And say, listen, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm here trying to get this done, but, you know, based upon how this process has progressed, I'm not sure that you're all that interested and just calling it out for people. Or you know this behavior, let me just share with you the signal that I'm getting from the behavior and just call it out. And then in labeling it for the other side, oftentimes if they're really not there in bad faith, you'll kind of expose that. If it's just a tactic that they're using to try to get an advantage, many times you'll deal with it just by calling it out. But sometimes what you have to do and every negotiator can do this is sometimes you have to shut the process down to deal with whatever the behavior is or whatever the bad faith nature of the other side is before you proceed. And if you can deal with it, proceed. If you can't, maybe you don't. And so the key there is to negotiate on process before you negotiate on substance. And one of the things you may have to negotiate is their behavior that's indicative of being there in bad faith.
0: Hey, everyone, Nolan here. Going to, to jump in and end today's podcast for part A of this episode. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Enjoy us next week for part B of this awesome interview.
1: Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.